to get here. Um, so you got our Savior, Good Shepherd, Alleluia, and that's just all within like a five-mile radius of us. Um, so how do we get to this, to this mess? Many of you might be familiar with the history, but um, we'll go over it again. Uh, why, why look at this creed as different, different questions? Um, I sent to you, oh, thank you. But anything, anybody else want to bring me something else? <laughs> um, if you, Pastor Wolfmuller, I, I attached a link in the, in, the, in the week at a glance this past week um, where Pastor Wolfmuller goes over this. I think he does a pretty good, a pretty fair job of, of generously going through this and, um, and trying to move things in a helpful direction. But uh, so get a chance. If you, don't, if you don't make sense of what I say today, you can check that out in the week at a glance and listen to Wolfmuller's thing on, on YouTube. But the idea of a creed in general is the Christian confessing, simply confessing the faith. Creed comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. And so everyone's got a creed, even if your creed is I believe that we shouldn't have creeds, or I, even if you say I don't believe in God, that's your creed. You're saying what you don't believe in, right? So... Uh, so we all have a creed, and the church has historically confessed creeds for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, the, the creeds were formed the, originally back in like the 300s. Um, the, the earliest creeds of the church were formed both. So Paul's got a few creeds. You can read in some of his epistles. Some of, some of the language of, of what he writes is very creedal, and so church history thinks that maybe this was some sort of a creed in the early church. But as far as popular creeds that we know of, we're talking like the 300s, we get the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was fashioned in response to false doctrine. So it wasn't that they sat down and said, what should we say about God? Because then it would be like, where do you start? Where do you stop? It's a kind of an endless potential for what you could I mean, the scripturally, scripturally guided. Where would you stop? Um, but really, the, what they're trying to say is there, there's, there's the Christian church at the time. There's one Christian church on earth. And at, so we're, we're saying we're Christian, and we believe that Jesus is fully God, and he died for our sins. And because he's fully God and died for our sins, it kind of like atones for our salvation eternally and all these wonderful things. You guys are saying you're God, but you're saying Jesus, uh, sorry, you guys are saying you're Christian, but you, you don't believe Jesus is God in the same way. You're saying Jesus is a created being of, of God. He's not equal to God the Father. So this is a different religion, Arianism specifically in that, in that case. So we wanted to be clear that, okay, this is, if you're gonna call yourself a Christian in the historic sense, this is what, this is what you're saying. And so the creeds were fashioned in opposition to the heresies of the day. Not to just be a, a, a judgmental bigot, to use t today's language, or a jerk, but to actually say the doctrine actually matters. It's important that we teach our children and that we know who Jesus is and what he does. And that God the Father actually created the heavens and the earth. These, are, these things bring clarity. So if somebody's over there saying, I'm a Christian and I believe God uh, the Father isn't binary, to use their language. So it just it starts to bring all this confusion of what is, the, what is the essence of the Christian faith. Jesus says, whoever confesses me before, before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven in Matthew 10. I was just like, 
a couple weeks ago in the gospel lesson. So we confess before, before the church and with the church, we confess the, the faith in these creeds, saying what I believe. Uh, confess comes from the Greek homo legeo, which homo, same, legeo, word or speak. So a confession is to say the same, to speak the same. So we confess the creeds. We're actually confessing back to God what he has told us about himself. We're saying the same thing he has told us. So we as the historic Christian church, we're confessing the faith revealed to us in the scriptures. We're confessing back to him. Also, the confession pops up in in the service, not with the creed, but where? Where we have confession, confess, a confession and absolution, right? Where... God says, you're a sinner. And you say, I'm a sinner. We say the same thing back to God. We're, that's what confession is. So God said, I'm a sinner, and I, and, and I say, I'm a sinner. God says, I died for your sins, and I say, amen. You died for my sins. Boom, confession and absolution, right? Um, so the, uh, that's what con- that's the word confess. We talked about the word creed. Um, I think from thinking through this this past week, like today, I, I, I mean, especially for those of you who grew up in a, in a liturgical church body where you're saying the creeds week in and week out, I think you can fall victim to both in the Lord's Prayer. I mean, even as a pastor, back when we had four services on a weekend with the words of institution, the proper preface to communion, when you're saying the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, it starts to kind of be disconnected. So when you're saying the creed, you're, like if the creed is after the sermon, during the creed you're thinking, all right, stretching out a little bit, waking up. Um, before the sermon, the, you have the creed, you're saying, I wonder what the hymn of the day is. Uh, so your, your mind can wander and you can just kind of like go with what you're, with what you're saying. So we, we, wanna, we wanna kind of think about what we're saying in the creeds. But now, especially when you see these creeds floating around in other church bodies, it's like for the first, for the first time in a while, like it was like shouting the Nicene Creed, like, Actually, there's a substance there of what we're confessing about God and the creed that we, that we maybe take for granted because we say it all the time. So I've got the creed there before you, a little bit of history there in italics. Um, she's like 10 minutes wet, northwest of the Mall of America is where that, where that uh, church is. Um, and so she, you can see this video online. I thought about playing the video here, but it's like too... It's too uh, traumatic. (laughs) So here's the creed. What I don't want to do, what I don't want to do is get too bogged down and unfolding all the whys behind this, because there's obviously, there's some, there's some bigger umbrella questions I want to bring to this creed um, as far as what's being confessed there. And then I really want to get to why such big differences. So I know that's maybe too much to, too much to chew here. Um, Creeds, um, Creeds unite the church together when we confess the creed together. We're, we're, we're joining together and confessing what the problem is and what the solution is. And so when you got a church saying that this is their creed, we have to be, well, kind of turn on our ears to what are they saying the problem is and what is the solution to the problem and what are they saying about God? And more importantly, what are they intentionally not saying? about God in contrast to the historic creeds. Because remember, 
when the church forms creeds or when anybody talks about creeds, I'd say, you're, since you're forming a creed in reaction to false teaching of the day, this is a new creed, which means it's been written in reaction to what they perceive to be false teaching of the, in the church at the time. See? So they're not, they're not just saying, here's some stuff that we believe. They're saying, we want to draw attention to this stuff that we believe because this, the, 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 what is known as the Christian church is missing it. All right, here's the Sparkle Creed. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. So in contrast to, I believe in God the Father, so the masculinity of God. And again, think confession, homiletical. We only call God Father because he's revealed himself to us as such. So it's not like we're just passing forcing this masculinity on, on God, but he has revealed himself to us as, as a father, whose pronouns are plural. Interestingly, in the scriptures, you do run across um, the demons who refer to themselves in the plural, legion. We are, we are legion. Um, so that's it's kind of unfortunate there. So I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. And that's why in letter B, they're able to say there. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, it's now God the Father, which they don't call the Father. It's now this generic God, distinguished from the Son. And Jesus Christ, that you and I know, this is going to be a different picture of Jesus. So remember, the creed that we confess goes to great lengths to assert the virginity of Mary, the, the virgin birth, and the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? And which is left out here. So I believe in Jesus Christ, their, their child. So we call Jesus the Son of God by pushing it on this child, the child of, of God. Now this is, this is getting closer to Arianism, the, like this created being of God versus light of light, God of God, very God of very God. The, there's, the creed makes, goes to great lengths to, to make sure we're understanding that when we say that Jesus is the son of God, we're not saying that he is somehow inferior, but it'd be like having a candle here that's lit and an unlit candle here and touching it together it's, this, it's of the same substance, and yet they're two different things. But how do we, we're going to call him a son. Why? Because he does. And he prays to God the Father. So we're confessing back to him. Uh, Jesus Christ, their child who wore a fabulous tunic and, and, had, and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. So why would the fabulous, first of all, where did this, this, this random assertion that God, Jesus has fabulous tunic, where would they, where do you get this idea? I mean, the scriptures only talk about Jesus wearing his clothes when? At the crucifixion, when they're, and he's not even wearing them. So here he wore a fabulous tunic, and you do have reference to the, to the lady who's bleeding, who touches the, the uh, fringes of his garment. What is, why the assertion of the fabulousness of this tunic? What's trying to be asserted here? The, uh, the, the shell, the outside color, the, the, some kind of a fancy outfit that would indicate what about the person? That he, so if he's a man wearing a fabulous garment, then what are we to think of Jesus? The same thing we should think about Francisco when he wears his glitter jacket. 
Well, this is, so this is a big step here. And, and notice, though, it's pushing against this binary, the, 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 these gender stereotypes that we shouldn't, we shouldn't be forcing boys to play with Barbies or we shouldn't be for, forcing bar, boys to play with G.I. Joes and girls to play with Barbies. Those are gender stereotypes. And yet we're bringing this gender stereotype right here and saying Jesus wore a fabulous tunic and therefore he must have been confused about his sexuality. I'm not gonna let you take me down a rabbit hole, Rich. Not yet. Wait till we get done. All right, what? Uh, what? All right. And had two dads. Now, where does that idea come from? So Joseph and God the Father. But interestingly there, I mean, jo Joseph at no point asserts his fatherness on Jesus. He recognizes his, his uh, vocation as the father, of the, the adoptive father of God insofar as he's raising Jesus, but he's never like, like asserting that he's married to God the Father in heaven or some kind of bizarro thing like that. But why does the creed make this? Why does it say it this way? Why two dads? Because now this, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stereotype to, to think there'd be a mom and a dad, but there could be two dads. I mean, families are made up of a variety of different things. If you, if you go to the public library and walk down any of the displays, like any book that's like easily accessible, we'll be pushing these agendas. Like the kid with two dads, or some people say, and it's the bullies, the bullies at school who say, well, there should be a mom and a dad. Uh, two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. This gets at, this is maybe, it seems to be maybe some innocent language, the child of God, because we talk about being children, sons and daughters of the king. Uh, we talk about being ch children of God. But this is after, this is trying to just assert on the front end that we're all these beloved children of God. We sang it actually in communion today. When do we become children of God? And why would we be baptized? What, so what's the problem that baptism is addressing? Sin. So Jesus calls us, he, he makes us children of God. He doesn't just blindly walk up and say, oh, the world is all my beloved children, all these beloved children of God. That's, so Jesus isn't coming to just say, I, love, I just love, love, love all these people. He's saying these people have this terrible problem that I'm gonna now take upon myself, which gets at what the creed is ultimately confessing. God being born of the virgin, born into this world to, to bear the sins of the world. Um, so salvation, then, as this creed's gonna go on to show us, salvation within this creed is simply this assertion that everyone is a child of God versus sinners in need of saving. Letter C, I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. So... The rainbow buzzword there. So what is this who shatters our image of one white light? So, so what is this one, what's the one white light? So it's, it's obviously a, a pushing against the racism. I think 2020 riots and so forth. So and the fact that it's, that it's, um, that it's, the, the, it's white, but there's also one. So it's, the problem is that there is one and it needs to be refracted into a rainbow of many. What's the problem with the one? This is a, an assertion of any truth. In fact, it's what, what, can, what creeds are confessing that there is a right and a wrong, a good and an evil, a right way and a wrong way. So ironically here, within this postmodern example of a creed, you've got this assertion that 
that God is, the, the Spirit is shattering any kind of perception that there's one truth and ma- makes it a bunch of truths. To which I'd ask the creed, well, is that true? And they'd say, yes. I'd say, well, it's not the one truth then. See? It's like self-contradictory. But that's, that's just the way postmodernism always does. It asserts this, I'm, I'm right when I say that everybody's right. No one is wrong. See? You can't, you can't say one thing is right, except for me. I, I'm the one thing that's right when I say that everybody is right. And that's what the creed's getting at. It refracts it into a rainbow of, of, of gorgeous diversity. So that's the purpose of, think, what's the Holy Spirit doing in the creeds? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. The creed, in the, when it talks about the Spirit, it's talking about the work of the Spirit when it comes to faith for sinners. When it talks about the life everlasting for sinners. So the Holy Spirit there is bringing about this faith, whereas here it's trying to reflect our, this, this mindset that there's one right way into a, a diversity of ways. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So the, you know the Holy Spirit has worked on you when you cease to believe that there's only one right way. I believe in the church, the gathering together of sinners together to receive Christ's gifts. No, I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the AIDS quilt. I don't understand what that even is getting at. Whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. So the church then is this gathering together of diverse people who are gazing up to God in wonderment. Isn't God wonderful? Versus God calling us together as those who bear his name for the purpose of receiving his gifts. So what makes the church the church is precisely that we are sinners brought together to receive the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. And we are given that with a certainty. So now I'm able to not look up to God in wonder, but I'm pointed not to doubt and confusion. That's what wonder means. Wow, how did this happen? But rather this clarity of sins are forgiven. Jesus did die for me, for me. Not just in general, but he died for me because I'm a sinner. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love. So beloved, let us love. So the push, the push in the creed is, is driving you to love. When Jesus summarizes the law, what's the word? Love. So is love bad? Certainly not. So is it loving for me to punch you in the face? Why not? What if I think it's loving for me to punch you in the face? So what I'm getting at here is, first of all, love is, love has to be objectively defined somewhere. You have, to, you, have to, you have to be able to call, you have to be able to define what love is, which is given to us in the Ten Commandments. But also this creed, which we recognize the creed is this, this ultimate confession of God driving toward really essentially the gospel of sins forgiven. The purpose of the creed is not driving us to do. See? So Jesus is taking the doing out of our hands and giving us salvation. This is actually taking salvation out of our hands and giving us the doing. Love is love is love. So beloved, love. I believe, glorious God, help my unbelief. 
Unbelief in what? What's this unbelief that I would have? Well, ultimately it would be the, any kind of sense that this is wrong or this creed is problematic would be unbelief. So, oh, oh Holy Spirit, help me to believe this better. So imagine yourself, you've been going to your, your, your church for 50 years somewhere and you get some new pastor at a seminary, some lady pastor like this, and they drops his creed on you and they've been asserting to you over and over again that really your resistance to this kind of stuff is evidence of your unbelief. Because if you actually had faith, then you'd be accepting these things. See? So what is replaced here? What, what's, the, what is the, what's the major problem that's missing in this entire creed? This, and by the way, this, this creed is confessed in a church and it wasn't just the one lady saying it. The, the, I think the worst part for me in, in hearing the creed was hearing all the other people saying it. There's no cross. There's no cross and there's, why would there be a cross? There's no, there's no sin. So now salvation is somehow found in this, just this assertion of God being all the things that are popular by our culture today. And God accepts blindly everything that our culture is today and accepts me for who I am and, wants, and God wants me to not call anything bad. I can't say anything is bad. That wouldn't be loving. Except for somebody who says this creed is bad and they would be unloving. There would be that major inconsistency. I mean, I would, a fair question to ask this, this lady would be like, okay, if I say that, that you're wrong and that this is, this is like anti-Christian insanity and that a, like a marriage has to be between a man and a woman, so all the things, would she say, oh, I love you? Is that the response of our culture? Who's being told love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. And I say, no, and she says, you bigot. All right, um, I, again, I don't, want to, I don't need to dig too deep into all this. It's clear, let me look at some of our questions. What is being confessed in the church's historic creeds that is missing here? We covered most of that. We're missing any kind of the humanity of Jesus as the divine who would take, a, take our sin upon himself and die. There is no cross in this creed at all. There's no need for a cross in the creed because there's no sin. The problem of sin is replaced by, what's the, what's the problem? You having one white light and failing to accept everyone's diversity. So diversity then is the God. You, you might say, having everyone, recognizing everyone in this gorgeous diversity as um, children of God, just because they are children of God. Um, any comments? Yes, thank you, Rich. Yeah, you have to speak up. Talk, talk as though you care about what you're saying and want other people in the back to hear you say it, Rich. What's that? Speak louder. <laughs> Isn't this just a pagan polytheistic made up religion that is hijacked to turn Jesus Christ because, I mean, they don't even say uh, Holy Spirit. They say Rainbow Spirit. So clearly, there's no foundation in the Bible. They're just hijacking the term Jesus Christ. Just like they hijacked the term rainbow, which came in the Bible, right? 
Good. Now let, so I'm going to push in on that. And like this, so this is classic, the church would call Gnosticism. It goes back to the earliest centuries of the church. And Gnosticism is always like, it's like this leech or this parasite that latches on to existing church and starts eating away at it and changing it, tearing things down. I mean, think of our culture today, tearing things down, tearing down institutions. It's, it's only destructive and not building up. So it's taking, it's definitely dangerous because it's masquerading as a church. I mean, look at the picture. I see an altar, which suggests whether they're gonna have on that altar. The Lord's Supper, she's wearing a stole, which means she's claiming to be in the office of the ministry. She's taking very similar language to the creeds insofar as there is a, what we would say, father being, a son, Jesus Christ, and a spirit. So it's, it's, try, it's intentionally trying to model itself, itself after historic Christianity, Christianity's creeds. Now, what I want to get at next, if any other... So any I, other wanted I wanted to finish my... I didn't know if you were going to stop. I mean, I, I, you certainly make a case for that. Um, That's the way they think. <laughs> but I, so maybe I want to I I start this with the recognition that, first of all, many of us, if not all of us, have friends and or family who are currently in a body that would confess this creed and would not necessarily believe it. Or they, they would be shocked by it and, and really devastated, maybe, by it. So I want to put, I want to be kind of sympathetic to what we're not trying to say is that all ELCA people are going to hell because they don't confess God. But we do want to be clear. So I'll, I'll say that's not what I'm saying. Um, but we do want to be clear that this, is, this creed is actually confessing a different God. So my question number three is this creed compatible with historic Christianity? The answer is absolutely not. It's a different, it goes out of its way to be a different God. So the Trinity isn't confessed at, at all. And we're not just after, so again, we're not trying to, well, you gotta confess it just right. You gotta get your language just right because we wanna get our language right because we're really grammar snobs around here. No, it's actually what it's, the object of what it's confessing is different. It's, it's completely different than historic Christianity or biblical Christianity. And when this is being confessed, then what is robbed of the children who are being taught this and their vacation Bible schools, what, what are they being robbed of? The God who creates, God who redeems, the problem that I needed to be redeemed from, the Holy Spirit that creates and sustains me in the faith. What is the nature of the church? All these things, right? Um, so we, 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 can be, we should be rightly kind of concerned here. They call themselves Christian, and this is a non-Christian creed. Now, it's not helpful. My last question, number seven, gets at this. Um, it's not helpful to just walk up and, I mean, maybe, depending on your, your friend, the relationship with your friend, but you're trying to have a conversation, trying to help free someone from this kind of craziness. Um, you want to maybe ask some questions. So would you consider yourself a Christian? 
So what do you think it means to be a Christian? Well, it, okay. And they might tell you, Jesus dying for all my sins. Well, why didn't you mention any of that stuff in this creed? What's the point? Um, yes, Marty. Um, what does God's wrath look like? God's wrath looks like Jesus dying on the cross. So the, um, I think that's maybe a helpful starting point on this. So what Paul is after, he's just certainly describing a fallen world. And it's helpful. It's not like Paul is prophetic. Paul's simply describing his day, Rome, the Rome that they see, that maybe we in a in 20 or let's say 18th, 19th, 20th century America have, have somewhat been removed from or, or isolated from maybe in our, we're not seeing the same kind of rampant like homosexuality, for example, that was embraced by first century Rome. But that was, so what Paul was describing a culture that was handed over to their sin, to use his language. Um, but then, then the, what Paul is setting up though is he's turning the, he's turning the gun on the Christian in chapter two. It's not just saying don't be judgmental. He's saying, you know better than them. So you're called to something different. Well, why are you still sinning? And so the whole track of Romans and really of Paul is, is pointing out our sin. That's what he's after. So we can pick up some helpfulness of how he describes the, the fallen world being handed over to, handed over to their sin. And ultimately, if we're going to say Jesus is after repentance, oftentimes the way that he's going to get there is by handing someone over to their sin. Think prodigal son being handed over to his sin in such a way that he's left with nothing in the pig pen, um, and only then is he brought back. And so 
the, 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 the place that the church gets to play, the role that the church gets to play in all this is a great one. Because remember, all of these Romans in, in Romans chapter one who are wrapped up in these mess, it's no different than our situation. We've got neighbors, our own family in many cases, being sucked into all this. And we see it as this like, this bondage to insanity, a lack of, a lack of like clarity of what is true and what is false. And what we're trying to do is break in with, with God's reality and his, and his word, recognizing that he's gonna work repentance and faith in his way, but he uses his word to do it. So as God puts us in opportunities to have a conversation, as Christians, we're able to say, I need to know how to confess my God clearly to help my neighbor. And that's gonna look different for each of us. We're all vocationally different. So if I've got someone stuck in this situation, in this, in this church, to get at um, the history of the ELCA, well, let me, let me start, let me, let me jump to that, and then I, maybe we'll end up back here. Um, when you think back to like 18th century, we get the enlightenment in the middle of the 1700s, it's like science, scientism starts to become rampant. And so science was embraced over and against faith, which is ironic because most of the best scientists of the 18th century were Christians. Um, but then what started to happen was that science replaced faith. So existence only is what I can measure and see and test. But interestingly, science only can measure physical realm, but it's making assertions about, this, about the faith realm, the spiritual realm. So, so think about like our, our like natural assumptions. If it's not measurable by science, it doesn't exist because we've been taught to think that way. Well, no, no, science can only measure a certain realm but it's, making, it's, it's asserting that there is no spiritual realm. So what starts to happen then within the spiritual realm, so to speak, in the church, is that there is this, they, they reflect on the holy book, the Bible, and they start to say, well, there's not a spiritual realm. And now we have to find some sort of meaning for this book. It's simply a, a cultural history of a people. God, so we would say God's people, or the, is the people of Israel, who came out of bondage and so forth and how they kind of trace their lineage. Every culture has similar crazy stories. Go back and look at the Baal works and all these other um, false religions. They've all got stories of their creation and how they came to be and how they ended up, where, why this, what explains the seasons, all that. Um, and so this is simply the book that explains the Christian history. Uh, but especially the Old Testament is not true. This is called higher criticism. It was rampant in the universities in Europe, primarily, and especially in the 19th century. It was an overlap of Marxism, oversimplifying Darwin, uh, Darwinian evolutionism. So we're looking, well, there's certainly evolution. It's absolutely true. And it doesn't really mesh with creationism. So we have to find a way to kind of blend these things together. Well, we're going to say evolution is how creation happened. And well, God, the Bible talks about it as a day, but it really means billions of years, even though it says day. You might've heard this argument before. Um, and so when we run into Jonah and the big fish and, and uh, Elijah's uh, raising, the, raising the child from the dead, like all these miracles of the Old Testament are suspect. And so they're all, the creation, creation especially, 
They're all stories of a cultural background that have no bearing on reality except for the kind of like how a people explains where they came from. Okay? They're, they're myths. Except for the New Testament. So we have to, we're going to keep holding on to Jesus because it's more recent history. And but so there is certainly a Jesus who died on the cross. So that was like first generation higher criticism. But the, the logic that had us, had them rejecting the Old Testament as being like just a myth, that was simply taken up by the next generation of higher critics and applied to the New Testament. If we're not gonna believe in a creation in the Old Testament, then why, why are we believing a resurrection from the dead in the New Testament? Why is Jesus, we're able to believe Jesus walks on water? That's ascientific. Um, that Jesus would feed the 5,000, and most importantly, the resurrection is the key there. The resurrection from the dead is like, obviously ascientific, that can't happen. Um, so the, all of these key events of the Bible are getting in the way. So we're gonna look at the Bible and say, the Bible is not God's word, but it contains God's word, elements of God's words, ideas, primarily love. Uh, interestingly enough, love is the main idea of what God's trying to say. Love manifests itself in different ways at different times in history. And so love in the first century looked very different than love in our time. So if I'm a Christian in the 21st century, I'm most importantly supposed to be loving. And how, I do, how do I define love? By however our culture defines love. But I can't trust the Bible because it's a suspect book of myths put together by primarily men. And, and, men, and men who make mistakes. So the Bible's full of errors. You've heard that. We've gone over that kind of stuff before. So as you, as you fast forward to the, to the Missouri Synod in the 19, it was growing already in the 1940s. The, problem, the roots were there. Um, so in American Christianity was starting to pick up on higher criticism. We saw divides among the Baptists. Every other, every other mainstream American denomination split in the 20th century. And the, it's the conservatives who walked out in those cases, except for Missouri. In the Missouri Senate, the liberals walked out. And then in 1974, you have the, the, the uh, a, they formed what, was, what became the AELC. It was the biggest heretics in the Missouri Senate walked out of, of the seminary in St. Louis. And they ended up merging in 1988 with the, if you're familiar with the LCA, the Lutheran Church in America, which is the first Lutheran body to ordain women back in the 60s, I believe. So they've already departed from biblical Christianity. Because as soon as you open the Bible and say, okay, like I'm gonna ignore Paul when Paul talks about women not being pastors. Well, that's not very popular today. So I'm gonna take that piece out. I'll ignore that piece, just that one piece. You see, how is that any different than today having an openly transgender person as a pastor? Because I've already said, I've already said the Bible isn't the authority on this issue. So the roots were there back in the 60s. The, the ALC, which is conservative, a more conservative little sister, um, was actually entertaining fellowship with the Missouri Synod back in the early 70s. And many of you probably might've come from the ALC or have friends in the ALC. Um, they ended up merging with the LCA, the big liberal body, and the AELC. I should be writing all these down. Um, and formed what we know today as the ELCA in 1988. So it's this conglomerate of super duper liberal former Missouri Synod Lutherans, 
very liberal American Lutherans from the LCA, and generally conservative Lutherans that they were just trying to like wanted to play on the winning team. And they, when it seemed like it was going to be the ELCA, they jumped on with that team. Now, what's happening now, it's interesting enough, like in our own Napervillian context, Good Shepherd was a old ALC congregation. Remember that conservative little sister? And then when the, when the church body went conservative, I mean, just imagine if today, I mean, hopefully this doesn't ever happen, but if the Missouri Synod just went totally nuts and said a bunch of crazy stuff, you're like, well, I know Pastor Clemmer, we're not going to do that nonsense at Bethany, right? So even though Missouri Synod might go wackadoodle, I'm going to hold down tight and keep being faithful. Uh, well, that's what happened in the ELCA congregations, especially the ALC folks. So they're like, they have a good conservative pastor in his 30s, and he said, hey, you know what? I want to be a pastor here for the next 40 years. So 40 years, are start, are, the time is up. All these guys are dying or retiring. And so then your congregation, like Good Shepherd, says, we need to call another pastor. So you go to the seminaries, and you can't find anyone who's not a lesbian. That's, a, that's actually a fact. Like, you cannot, you can't, you talk to, like, Jim Nestigan, former professor at some ELCA seminaries, the average graduate of the ELCA seminaries are, like, open homosexuals. What? So here you are in a, conser- a formerly conservative church body thinking, okay, we just want to be Lutheran. And if you're talking to your friend over coffee and Christmas or whatever, and they're, they, they're ELCA, they're like, I believe everything you believe. And they can't figure out why... This happens in their church. All of a sudden, now we have, to call, we have to call a lesbian who's pushing all these agendas on me. Well, think the roots going all the way back to the Bible is not God's word, but contains God's word. And now I have to interpret it for however I want to define love and what, however I'm going to establish uh, truth. So in, in, in our context today, this is a picture, this creed, is, is this not a picture of today's definition of love, the cultural definition of love. I can't run to the scriptures to define love because the Bible is written by men and suspect and full of errors. So instead, I'm going to let the culture define love and try to push that back into the church. And so that's why today you end up with a church body that calls themselves Lutheran. Now, interestingly enough, this is an interesting thing. Uh, the assertion, because we would say, Okay, you want to believe crazy stuff? Fine. Call yourself a Methodist then. (laughs) But they actually would say that they're more Lutheran than you and me. Because to be a Lutheran, think back to the Reformation. Now this is what I'm about to paint as an oversimplified false view of history, but Luther changed the church to accommodate the needs of the day. Think all the peasants, they weren't getting the gospel. And so he needed to change a bunch of stuff in the church so that it was accessible. So the gospel became accessible to the culture. And that's what we're doing today in the ELCA. You Missouri Synod, you're basically the old Catholics at the time of the Reformation, refusing to change, see? So that's why they would say, you guys should change your name to Catholic or something. But we're gonna be the, that's why they got the same name. And so there's always like, Anytime the Lutherans make the news, it's always not our kind of Lutheran. And so you tell somebody you're a Lutheran, I introduce myself, what do you do? I'm a Lutheran pastor, and then I have to be like, not that kind of Lutheran, you know? Yeah. You have to kind of explain what you mean by that. But, that, but, but especially in our day, honestly, these days, it's like, well, I'm a Christian. 
what do you mean by that? And have this opportunity to confess what a Christian is and then what a Lutheran is. And that gets a, maybe a, a helpful place in number seven, engaging the world. So it, is not, it should not surprise us that the world has gone crazy. It started in the garden. That, this, that if, I, if I have things other than God created to be a gift for me, then it will be better for me. That's the original, that's original temptation from the devil, right? Try the fruit. I know God gave you, the, God established all these other good things for you, but you should have it a different way. It's going to be better for you. And, and that's no, I mean, so nothing new under the sun in that way. And things have always been nuts and crazy. So we, the church then is left on earth to be able to speak this light into the darkness. We don't, we don't even have a promise that it's, that it's going to work, but we are called to be faithful and to confess clearly. And so at a time when there's so much confusion, we wanna be clear about what the creeds are and why they matter. Why God, why, why this confess, what's, what's missing here with Jesus is so significant. Not because we're sticklers of the, of the rules and wanna get our history book just right, but because salvation has been removed from this creed and from this church, it would seem. So then, then I got people who are being sucked into this thing and, and they're being told that it's Christianity. So now imagine some, some logical person sitting in the pew at this church and finally saying, what? If this is Christianity, I'm out of here. So now they've walked out on Christianity. You and I are saying, no, 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 this isn't Christianity you've walked out on, right? It's like when you, if you, if you try one of those like impossible burgers and then say, if this, is a, if this is a burger, I'm never eating burgers again. That's not a burger. But it's called, it says it's a burger. It's not a burger, right? That's a great analogy, I think. <laughs> so you try a real one. So what we're trying, to, we're just trying to, get, we're trying to make sure that people are trying real burger. Like, 